Hello, welcome to The Wire, where you can get independent coverage of current affairs on your local community radio station, wherever you are, right around Australia. I'm Roderick Chambers in Sydney, and coming up on The Wire today... And I see that very much happening in Indonesia, where the Jokowi infrastructure around social media and various other government largesses is being channeled towards the Prabowo and Jokowi Sons campaigns. And that means it's not necessarily an even playing field. According to media researcher Ross Tapsell, Indonesian presidential candidate Prawowo has gained a distinct political advantage from inheriting the former President Jokowi's social media machine. Also coming up on The Wire... When they transitioned to a, a more sort of ground-based group, your group sizes generally get larger, and that is a way to help protect sort of a group against predators. A new study from ANU shows that the old-world monkeys like baboons, macaques and mandrills have developed bigger temporal lobes in the last 15 million years in their brains. We find out how this makes them better survivalists and communicators. Stay tuned for all of this and more coming up on The Wire. But first, while the increasing interest rates are exacerbating the cost of living crisis for Australian residents, a recent report revealed some major supermarkets made large profits in 2023. Woolworths, for example, made net profits of $1.62 billion. Former Trade and Competition Minister Craig Emerson has been appointed as the head of a new federal government review, which will focus particularly on the relationship between the farmers, the wholesalers and the big supermarket chains. David Zhuang asked Associate Professor Sanjay Paul at the UTS Business School what the reasons were behind this inquiry into supermarket pricing. In the last two, three years, Australians have been facing extreme cost of living pressure because of you know, price rising in supermarkets in, in everywhere. So I believe at the same time, supermarkets made record profit, net profit in, back in 2022 and 2023. And I believe that triggered the you know intention to have a query about how they uh, made the record profit during that crisis time. It was also observed that food price raised above the inflation rate. So why is that happened? So why that happened? And maybe they could decide what are the way forward uh, for the next uh, crisis time or similar times arise in future. So for those of our, our listeners that probably don't really know much about price gouging, what actually is price gouging? Price gouging is setting unfair price and uh, without compared to their buying and costing. So it's not, it's just an allegation at this moment. We don't know how they set the price. And that is the allegation about gouging that, okay, did they set any unfair price or did they increase the price intentionally? So that is what we called uh, price gouging. So what do you think the supermarkets should do in response to this price gouging legislations? I believe there are multiple ways to look forward into the future. Supermarkets should disclose the price breakdown at least at product level. It could be profit margin at individual product level, not at whole revenue level or organizational level. I believe they already have this data, but they could disclose it uh, to make sure they are transparent, they are not, you know, uh, charging extra money from the customers and that will help build customer confidence. Okay, uh, they are not making too much profit, we know it now, then we'll be more confident to spend money 
or buy product from the supermarket. Second, the governments, they should think about making policies for transparent pricing. Because currently, we don't have an exact policies for transparent pricing. Anyone can set any price. So governments and supermarkets can work together. Not only supermarkets, could be other retailers as well. Sit together and set policies, how they should set the price. And third should be more competition. Currently, we have two big supermarkets in Australia. Free business, they could set any price because they have less competition in the market and their market shares are way too high to make sure a fair competition. So that's why more competition, more big supermarket, if it is here in Australia, that would be more beneficial for customers to make sure their pricing are fair and transparent. How do you think this alleged price gouging is affecting the customers under the cost of living crisis? Yeah, ultimately, we as a customer are the sufferer here. Because if you see, if if you spend more money in the supermarkets because of inflation or price gouging, we don't know it yet, we start you know, spending less money on less important things at the beginning. Then we start cutting our spending uh, to important things. So that is a source of psychological and mental pressure when we are not financially stable. So that compromised the quality of living here. So so customers become angry when they find out uh, they're struggling. At the same time, supermarkets making record profits. Two are big contradictions, uh, contradictory things. So uh, I believe this is a big gap between customers and supermarkets because their customers feel the tension of spending money and supermarkets making record profits. Two are totally opposite things. And that creates, you know, anxiety, awareness, sorry, uh, angriness and other mental pressures. Moreover, if you see here, the growers and farmers, they don't get their fair price for their products because they accrued supermarket that they make too much profit from their crops. So why that happen? What are the reasons behind that? If they accuse supermarkets and as a consumer, I am not confident now because I feel that supermarkets will make, are making more profit because farmers and growers accuse them. So that is also a source of, I believe, in uh, economically and uh, mentally unstable situation that farmers and growers also accuse them. Dr. Sanjay Paul, Associate Professor in the UTS Business School, University of Technology, Sydney, speaking there with David Zhuang. With President Jokowi unable to run for re-election, Indonesia is going to have a new president with three candidates vying for the chance to lead the world's third largest democracy. In a nation with some of the largest number of social media users in the world, the digital campaign will be an important instrument in ensuring audiences gather an understanding of the candidates. Recent elections in Southeast Asia shows how social media can be used and abused. And Stephen Hill asked Associate Professor Ross Tapsell from ANU how the internet is being deployed by these candidates. So I think over the past 10 years, there has been a very quick transformation 
in political campaigning in Indonesia, the first transformation has been um, social media has obviously become much more important and candidates are putting a lot more money into their social media presence. And at the same time, we have seen mainstream media become much more consolidated around political uh, oligarchs and those influences on TV and newspapers can also impact the type of coverage. The current frontrunner Prabowo is a rather controversial figure, a son-in-law of former dictator Sahado, who has previously run very much on his record as a military leader, who recently has been using TikTok to soften his image. There are recent polls showing Prabowo has been gaining support among younger voters. Do you think some of this is attributable to the social networks campaign he's running? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think it's something we do need to do more work on. But I I would say that Prabowo has tried a number of narratives around what he stands for and what kind of candidate he is. And as you say, he's run many times to become president. Previously, we've seen populist, almost a Trump-like Prabowo. We've previously seen Islamist populist Prabowo. And now we're seeing a softer, more generic, uh, without a clear policy platform, a a guy who's saying, I've been here for a long time, I, I know what I'm doing, and also, you know, I'm kind of fun. And in many ways, it shows that the social media campaigning has become a bit more vacuous in the sense that they do hire these professional campaigners whose job it is to move discussion away from important issues make the campaign something rather menial. That's really the debate going on in Indonesia at the moment, as we've seen a couple of debates on TV, is how much criticism is there of the current president, Jokowi, whose son is also running as vice president, and how much should they be criticising each other? In Southeast Asia, probably the most troubling recent example is how social media has been deployed in the Philippines, first through the Duterte campaign and more recently through Bongbong Marcos, who was able to use social media to whitewash the history of martial law during the time of his father. For the young population in Indonesia, is there also a possibility that the myth and misinformation could prevail in the upcoming Indonesian election? Yeah, slightly different. Obviously, with Marcos, you've got the son of the former dictator running to be president. So they really needed to have a explicit campaign, which challenged that narrative. In Indonesia, Prabowo has been running for a number of campaigns now over the past decade or more, and he has become part of the furniture. He's been the defence minister under the Jokowi government. He's been around as head of a political party for a long time. And so in many ways, it's not a need to whitewash that process has been happening over decades. There is generally not the nostalgia for the Sahato New Order that we've seen in Indonesia that occurs in the Philippines. In Indonesia, people are generally very happy with democracy and for the most part believe that they're in a fairly democratic system with freedom of expression. Where I see similarities is incumbency advantage. And you mentioned with Duterte that a lot of the social media infrastructure was then handed over to Marcos to then help win that campaign. And I see that very much happening in Indonesia, where the Jokowi infrastructure around social media and various other government largesses is being channeled towards the Prabowo and Jokowi's son's campaigns. And that means, therefore, that it's not necessarily an even playing field. 
And we've seen in previous election campaigns how social media has been weaponised by what is known as a black campaign that aims to slander a political opponent. This would see President Jokowi accused of being Chinese and a communist. And probably the most dramatic example would involve the former Jakarta Governor Ahok, who would end up being jailed mm-hmm. for making anti-Muslim comments. Is it possible with social media able to micro-target messages that we're going to see identity politics lead again to massive stage protests? If the election is close, then yes. At the moment, the the election is not close. Prabowo is looking very much like the victor and the vice presidential candidate. His running mate is Jokowi's son, and they're very much in front. And therefore, you tend to see the incumbency advantage will make sure that some of this content is cracked down upon very quickly by the state apparatus. If you had an independent president, then you might see him free for all on social media. But I think at the moment, what we're going to see is a much more controlled discourse. Some Indonesians would say that's a good thing. Having said that, the Indonesian election can go to two rounds. As you said, there's currently three candidates. And what will happen is if no one gets 50%, then it will go to a runoff and we'll see another election campaign in the next six months to be decided in June. And one could expect that you might see a more polarised campaign if there's only two candidates and questions around the role of Islam in society, the role of China, even things like Israel-Gaza might come up a bit more, and the communist bogeyman. And we might see some of these campaigns, particularly if a candidate becomes desperate. Dr Ross Tapsell, Associate Professor of Media at Australian National University, speaking there with Stephen Hill. A new study shows that the brains of baboons, macaques and mandrels began increasing in size 15 million years ago to adapt to new habitats. The temporal lobe, the part of the brain responsible for memory and communication, of these monkeys began to scale up to match an increase in brain size in most monkey species. Francis Du asked lead author and ANU PhD candidate Alana Pearson to explain her groundbreaking findings. Uh, very early anthropoids, which are sort of ancestors of All monkeys and apes had a relatively smaller temporal lobe than what we found in later fossils and the emergence of living groups of old world monkeys, which had a temporal lobe that sort of scaled with brain size. So there was an increase over time in the size of the temporal lobe compared to the brain size. And this transition particularly occurred during the emergence of the what is recognised as one of the first um, old world monkeys. For those of us who don't know what old world monkeys are, can you <laughs> name some that we might know about? Sure. Um, so old world monkeys, probably the best known, be uh, like baboons and um, and macaques. So um, macaques are found in Asia, also in Africa. But they're very, um, probably baboons are probably best known, you know, sort of uh, large monkeys that um, almost exclusively uh, live on the ground. How significant are these changes in their temporal lobe in understanding their behaviour and evolution? So the temporal lobe um, is something which is uh, uh, what we term a multimodal association cortex. So that means that it does a lot of different processing. In humans, it's associated with uh, language production and um, uh, speech comprehension. Uh, but obviously, in when we're looking at monkeys, 
uh, we have to sort of uh, rely more on vocalizations. Um, so baboons that I mentioned and macaques are really vocal um, species of old world monkeys that live in Africa. And in terms of like what that would mean for the temporal lobe is you've got um, the emergence of sort of larger social groups. So you've got um, more social com complexity and more interactions between individuals. And the temporal lobe is also um, used in facial recognition. So um, it, that for monkeys is, is important for being able to recognise individuals in your group and also um, individuals that don't belong to your group. Does your research also indicate that uh, monkeys are also capable of remembering friends, like even if they've not seen each other for decades? Yes. Um, it's observed in um, sort of fieldwork studies of these monkeys that um, that is something that they are definitely capable of doing, recognising all members of their group, but also not just by face, but by their vocalisations. So um, they will call to each other quite a lot um, during the, um, you know, when they're on the ground eating, um, and that helps them maintain where they are, where the other group members are. What sort of survival strategies are we seeing evolve with these um, new changes in their frontal lobe? Uh, in the temporal lobe? Sorry, yep. yes, temporal lobe. <laughs> yep. Um, yeah, so in terms of uh, survival strategies, um the earlier monkeys uh, that I mentioned, which were in like really dense tropical uh, rainforests, so these are sites which are current uh, day Egypt, which are obviously desert, um, but sort of around 36 million years ago, these were really uh, moist tropical rainforests, and these monkeys were living in, um, in the trees and in smaller groups. So in terms of... Um, survival of um, against other predators. Most of those predators would have been uh, ground-dwelling. So, you know, living in the trees at that point uh, was um, advantageous for them. Uh, when they transitioned to a, a more sort of ground-based group, um, your group sizes generally get larger, um, and that is a way to help um, protect sort of a group against predators because you've got more eyes um, able to um, look out for, for the group. So it's sort of a, um, you know, even while those individuals are, you know, sort of uh, eating and, and socialising, they're also keeping an eye out for predators. A new PhD candidate, Alana Pearson, speaking there with Francis Stew. The Australian government has addressed dating apps to modify safety standards to prevent users from becoming victims of sexual violence. A study in 2020 showed that about three-quarters of users have experienced sexual violence in dating apps in the last five years. David Zhuang asked Professor Mark Kebbell, School of Applied Psychology, Griffith University, why dating apps need to lift their standards and improve safety. It's deeply unpleasant to be sexually harassed online. Why is it important to regulate dating apps? Because... Some people are using dating acts to sexually harass people and send indecent images. 
how does online sexual violence harm users' lives? It makes men in general look bad. What we have is we have a small number of men who are targeting lots and lots of victims. The fact that they can do these things online means it's a, a multiplier. There's less cost to them. It's not like, say, for example, in the old days, you know, 30 years ago, when you, you wanted to show someone your penis, you had to drive around, maybe go to a bus stop, maybe go to a park, and it was time-consuming. You were like to be identified, and there are ramifications of it. What we've done with some of the online technologies is we've allowed people to target multiple victims very easily without being able to be identified. What measures should be introduced to improve user safety in the online environment, especially dating apps? I think there's a variety of measures, but certainly knowing who you're communicating with is, is going to be one of the central ones. Yeah, ideally, I'd, I'd like men to, and most men aren't doing this, but for those who are, we need to have conversations with them as men to stop doing this. They vary. I mean, they're not all the same. Some of them have cognitive problems. They don't really understand what they're doing, whereas others, they perfectly well understand what they're doing and they enjoy the displeasure that they're causing. So we have to be careful about who it is, what they're doing it for, why, and then make decisions from there. It was found that three-quarters of online daters had been subject to online sexual violence in the past five years. How do you think that dating apps became such a place for sexual violence? It's not everyone doing this. It is some people who are prolifically abusive. And clearly the anonymity, the scale that you've got from dating apps allows people to do this. You know, it allows a small number of people to have an awful lot of victims. Yeah? I mean, there's a whole lot of issues here about you know, empathy, understanding how the victim might feel about this. And of course, you don't have those cues. If you do something horrible to someone in person, you can see the distress that you're causing. Now, not everyone picks up on those cues, but most people can. Whereas if you're doing it on a dating app, you aren't picking up on those cues. You may not be aware of how distressed or how distressing what you're doing is. That's not to say that some people aren't fully aware and are doing it because they want to distress people. It depends. Different people have got different motives. What kind of people are most likely to become the victims of online sexual violence? We've done some very preliminary studies and it, it, it does seem to be quite across the board. I think just being online there seems to be a risk, which is a very sad state of affairs. Online sexual violence is not anything new, but why did the platforms hesitate to make changes and who the government addressed them to? Let me put it this way, they often have refused to do the right thing without either threats that people will go to the media about what they're doing or threats of regulation. So it's an unfortunate situation where a lot of our social media corporations are aware of the danger and the, and the damage they're causing people but are reluctant to do anything, which means they make less money. My concern about apps is that they allow or the only way you can make decisions about a prospective person is essentially what is written very briefly and what they look like and how they describe themselves. And if you look at conventional dating where you're face-to-face with someone, you firstly, you've got other people around you typically, and you get to see you know, what they're like, how they talk, how they interact with other people, how they interact with you. You've got far more cues to make you know, good decisions about whether you want to date this person. And I think as a society, we need to think, particularly for young people, how we can have safe environments for, for young people to chat and meet and decide if they want to have romantic relationships. And by that, I mean things like having more situations for young people to be able to meet each other and you know, form relationships in the way that we have done for you know, millennia. 
How do you think online dating apps are different from offline dating? I mean, I think there's huge differences. Firstly, you know, it's much easier to lie online than it is in person. And it's much easier to curate uh, a false image of yourself online than it is in person. We have so many more dimensions in person than we have in an online presence. For example, if you have a date with someone, so you go for coffee in the morning, and so you have a half an hour of coffee with that person. It's very difficult to hide really strange things that may be going on for you. Is there anything else I would like to add about this topic? The only thing I would add is most men don't do this, and we have to be careful not to stigmatize all men. This is some men who generally other men don't like doing these things. Professor Mark Kebble, School of Applied Psychology at Griffith University, speaking there with David Chuang. And that's it for the Wire today. You can find all of our stories online at thewire.org.au. Or subscribe to our podcasts. Just look for the Wire Radio. Today's program came from the studios of Radio Two SER one hundred seven point three here in Sydney, and broadcast around the nation on the community radio network. In Sydney, the Wire is produced on Gadigal Country of the Eora Nation, and with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We're going to be back again tomorrow, so do tune in again then. I'm Roderick Chambers. Do stay well, and thanks for your company. Music